us to uh, spend a little bit of time looking at the passages that we read along with one or two others that we'll we'll turn to uh, as we make our way through. Uh, But let me read again um, verse 5 of Mark chapter 3. So that's in the front of your order of service. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus Christ is the most captivating individual of all of history, um, and that's because uh, he is true and truly human. He reveals everything that God is, and he shows us everything that we should be um, as humans. Um, and that makes Jesus so fascinating to look at. Uh, Every part of his life, every word he spoke, um, has got something amazing to teach us. And his, his, you know, his imprint on history uh, can be seen so clearly. I mean, even today, we, we were walking around uh, just the centre of London here, uh, and you see, um, you, you just see some of the most magnificent buildings uh, in the city uh, built uh, as churches, uh, all all arising from the impact that Jesus has had uh, on history. Uh, but Jesus doesn't just shape, um, you know, the architecture of, of uh, central London. Um, he also shapes uh, our houses, our homes. Uh, many of you may have um, little plaques on your wall, maybe pictures with Bible verse. Uh, maybe uh, some of you will have uh, magnets on your fridge uh, that have got Bible verses. Um, and that's a great thing to have. There's some wonderful verses that, you know, you can you can read um, just glancing at them on, on your fridge or whatever it may be, and they can be encouraging. I am pretty confident, however, that none of you will have a fridge magnet with the first half of Mark 3, 5. He looked around at them with anger. Yet, that's what we have right here in the Word of God. And that's what I want us to think about, I want us to think about uh, Jesus's anger. Now, it's not something we tend to think about much or talk about. I think it's because for many of us, if not for all of us, we tend to instinctively think of anger as a bad thing. And the reason for that is most likely because our day-to-day experiences of anger tend to be negative. So if your boss was angry with you last week, then that's going to make for a rubbish day. At work, probably a rubbish week. If you've had to deal with an angry partner or angry parents, even angry children, it's horrible. And so often when we get angry ourselves, we don't come away feeling glad. We'll often come away with a huge sense of regret. And all of that means that anger in relation to Jesus can be a neglected topic, maybe even a controversial one. It's certainly one that people don't tend to talk about very much. Some people might even say, and some people have said in history, that you know, we shouldn't really associate the idea of anger with Jesus or with God. But a passage like Mark 3, um, and really the whole gospel narratives, leave us in absolutely no doubt that there were times when Jesus was angry But coupled to that is a crucial theological truth that's revealed to us by the rest of the New Testament and one that we must never ever lose sight of, the fact that that Jesus, in everything that he did, was without sin. 
So no matter what you read about Jesus doing or saying or experiencing, he was never sinful in any of those things. So that means that when he got angry, his anger doesn't have all the negative stuff that we display or experience when we encounter human anger. In fact, what I want us to see tonight is that when we see Jesus getting angry, we are seeing something absolutely amazing. And to do that, we're going to ask four very simple questions. What made Jesus angry? What does this teach us about Jesus? What effect did his anger have? And what should we do in response? What made Jesus angry? What does this teach us about Jesus? What effect did his anger have? And what should we do in response? But before I come to those questions, I just want to make one final introductory point that is crucial and that we need to highlight. I'm going to run through ten moments when Jesus interacted with people. You don't need to turn to them, I'll just mention them all briefly. Number one, in John 3, Jesus met Nicodemus, uh, a prominent religious leader, but who struggled to understand even basic logical truths. In Mark 5, Jesus met a bleeding woman who was too afraid to speak and just wanted to secretly touch his garments, um, even though she was unclean and shouldn't have done it. Number three, in John chapter four, Jesus met a woman at a well. She had five failed marriages and now was not married to the man that she was living with. Fourth example is a Canaanite woman in Matthew 5. She begged Jesus to help her, even though she was a foreigner. Number five, it's the disciples in Mark 6 who were burnt out with exhaustion. Number Number six is also the disciples in Luke 10, in John 10, when they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Seventh example comes from Luke 7. It's a notorious woman, like a, like notorious in the worst possible way, um, who, who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Eight is John, is Thomas in John 20, who doubted that Jesus had risen. Nine is Peter, who failed spectacularly by denying Jesus. And the tenth example is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, which all the Gospels record, where Jesus was falsely accused, mocked, and beaten. In all these moments, Jesus is confronted with people who do not understand what he's saying. They fail to understand even the simplest things. You've got people whose lives are a mess, people who've made huge mistakes, people who are broken and vulnerable, people who let him down spectacularly, and even people who are aggressive towards Jesus. And yet all of these moments have one thing in common. Jesus didn't get angry. And it's reminding us that as we think of the times that Jesus did get angry, God forbid that we forget all the times when he didn't. It's reminding us that when we face people who are difficult or broken or slow to understand or who let us down, or even those who are aggressive towards us, if we're going to be Christ-like in those situations, then we need to strive to control our anger as well. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 16.32 In so many of life's most annoying situations, Jesus was a model of not getting angry. And we must never, ever forget that. But what I want us to focus on is the fact that Jesus is also a model of good anger. 
And so we're going to think about that together for a wee while and we can turn to our first question. What made Jesus angry? Um, I'm going to run through uh, just a few examples from the Gospels where we encounter Jesus' anger. Sometimes that's revealed in direct statements where it says he was angry. Sometimes it's um, implied uh, by the language that's used. So we read, the first one is what we read in Mark chapter 3, um, where uh, you've got a man with a withered hand, you've got the Pharisees watching Jesus, waiting to see what he's going to do because it's the Sabbath and they want to catch him out for doing something wrong. And it enrages Jesus. And so what makes him angry? It's a cold indifference to human suffering. The fact that the Pharisees are more interested in catching Jesus out than they are in helping a sick man. Another example is in Mark 10. Uh, That's when we we read about uh, the disciples preventing children uh, from coming uh, to Jesus. Uh, So Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 13 uh, to 16 uh, they were coming to him. Oh, there we go. I was thinking I couldn't find the verse on the wrong page. Um, they were bringing little children to him, they were, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was really angry. What made him angry? He was angered by the kind of discrimination that was being made against children, against people who seemed insignificant. He's angered that these children are seen as unimportant. At various times we see Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves, rebuking a fever, rebuking an evil spirit. In all these examples, Jesus is angered by causes of human suffering. He's rebuking all the things that cause pain, distress, and fear in humanity. Another very powerful example is in uh, Matthew 23. Uh, Here, Jesus is angered by the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Uh, Matthew 23, uh, 23 uh, onwards. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The cleansing of the temple in John 2 is another example. Um, The temple had been turned into a marketplace um, the poor were being exploited. The, the building that was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations had become a house of profit for the select few. And it angered Jesus. And uh, in Mark 9, there's a really, uh, sorry, Matthew 9, there's a really interesting example um, where somebody's healed, um, but Jesus gives a really stern, a really stern rebuke to say, don't go around telling everybody what's happened. And the reason for that is because Jesus didn't want a false gospel gospel being spread. At that time, um, a lot of people's expectations was that the Messiah was going to be a political revolutionary to get rid of the Romans. Uh, And Jesus did not want uh, that kind of message to spread about him. He did not want to feed that misconception. And he gave a stern, an angry warning to prevent a false gospel from being spread. In all of these examples, we see two main things. We see Jesus defending people and Jesus defending the truth. His anger is provoked when he sees people suffering and when he sees the gospel being twisted. What do you think he thinks about our society today? 
people being exploited, the truth being twisted. I think, however, that the place where we see Jesus most angry of all is the passage we read from John 11. If you turn your order of service over, you'll see it, because I'll have to explain this a wee bit, um, because it's not completely obvious uh, from the reading that we had. If you go down to verse 33, uh, which is halfway through the second last paragraph, um, it says that when Jesus saw her weeping, so that's when he saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the word that's translated deeply moved um, really means outraged. And so it's a, I mean, I, I, like I'm, not a, I'm not amazing at Greek, so I don't ever like criticizing anyone's translations, but I'm not sure that that's really, I don't know if this translation is strong enough in the ESV because the word really does mean outraged. Jesus was outraged by what he saw when he was confronted by the horror of death by the agony of separation, by all the sorrow that his dear friends, Martha and Mary, were experiencing, by the fact that humanity is being torn apart by a brutal enemy. Jesus is outraged. That takes us to our second question. What does that teach us? What does all this teach us about Jesus? Well, to answer this, it's good to think about where anger comes from. So just think about it yourself. What are the, what are the triggers that tend to make you angry? Um, I think that we can identify three main categories. There's probably several more, but we can definitely identify three main categories of things that uh, can cause anger. One is pain. Um, I frequently hit my head on things. So, um, my parents have a wonderful, beautiful house. It's a very old house, low doorways, not designed for me. Sometimes low light fittings. Even sometimes the roof of a bus. I was in Glasgow and I stood up in the top deck and my head went straight into the roof of the bus. Um, and, you know, like at that split second when you hit your head on something, Andy doesn't know what this is like, but um, <laughs> when, when you hit your head on something, it's so sore and it makes you so angry. Just like in that split second, there's a flare-up of anger inside you. It's the same when you stub your toe. Um, you bite your tongue when you're eating. Oh, it's horrible. Um, but it's not just physical pain that can cause it. Psychological pain, psychological discomfort can do the same thing. So that's why we get annoyed when we're interrupted. Or when people around us are noisy. Or when something that we hoped for fails to materialize. So one trigger is pain. Another trigger is morality, our sense of right and wrong, our conscience. So when we see something that we see as wrong, it provokes us to anger. And that's, that's often a good thing, and often it's in relation to big ethical questions. So we see the plight of the homeless, or we see just the awful situation in Ukraine, or the inequalities in our own society, when we see something that we regard as morally wrong, it provokes us to anger. But often it can spill into much smaller and sometimes quite insignificant issues. So a great example is in football. VAR gets it wrong or doesn't go the way we want it to go. It can make you a bit angry. It can make you very angry. Um, when, when someone's driving fails to meet up to our expectations, 
That can make you angry. Um, when a politician says something that we don't agree with, um, all of these things can make us feel wronged and make us feel angry. So anger can be triggered by pain, it can be triggered by morality, but the third trigger is perhaps the most important of all. Anger can be triggered by love. When you love something or someone, if you see the object of your love being threatened or mistreated or abused or hurt, that can prompt us to anger. Now again, that can be a trivial thing. You might get angry if someone scratches your car. But it can be applied you know, to much more serious issues. You, you, you know, if, if your child gets a hard time at school, that makes you instantly angry. Or if a friend has is, is, is been you know, mistreated at work, um, or even when we feel like we're being hurt by others, all of that can um, prompt our anger. So these are three of the main triggers for anger. Pain, when we say that hurts. Morality, when we say that's wrong. And love, when we say that's precious. All of these things can prompt us to anger. And one of the key points that all this highlights is that there's a crucial link between our anger and our character. I'll never forget hearing a sermon uh, from Eric Alexander. Um, if you've not heard of Eric Alexander, he was a preacher um, in Glasgow uh, for many years in the second half of the 20th century uh, and an amazing preacher. The greatest uh, Glasgow preacher in the 21st century is Andy Longway. The greatest Glasgow preacher from the 20th century is Eric Alexander. Um, and I remember him saying one of the most penetrating tests of our characters is to ask the question what makes you angry so if you get angry if your car is damaged then it maybe tells you that you're a wee bit too materialistic and you care a lot about your car if you get angry when your team loses or when you don't get top marks in an assignment uh, or you don't get the promotion that you're hoping for then Maybe, maybe you're too competitive. Maybe you're too prone to wanting to be first. But if you get angry when your friend or your spouse or your child is mistreated, what does that tell you? It tells you that you love them. And if pain, morality and love are the triggers for anger, that means that your anger tells you an awful lot about what you really care about. It's always a crucial question to ask yourself, what makes me angry? But the key point I want us to recognize is that Jesus' anger was triggered by exactly the same things. Jesus was angered by pain, but not when he himself experienced pain, but when he saw suffering in the lives of others. Jesus was angered by wrongdoing. I'm sure that 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 that. There would have been a sense of that when it was done to himself. But, but what the Gospels record is that, that the Gospels present us with the fact that he was angered when, when others were wronged. And he was angered by false teaching that risked leading people astray. And Jesus was angered by love. Not love for himself or for his possessions, but love for others. When they were mistreated, when they were threatened, he was angered because to him people are so Precious, And this is where we start to see what an amazing thing Jesus' anger is. It's showing us that at the very core of his character is the deepest and most passionate concern for others. 
And that's, of course, why he could say the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think that this is a huge help for us when we're confronted with awful stuff in our lives. When we think of the pain that people suffer, when we see the injustice in the world around us, when we see the horror and agony of death, we must never forget that all of these things don't promote Jesus, don't prompt Jesus to just be, you know, kind of sympathetic. They provoke Jesus to a righteous and holy anger. And this is where we see the amazing truth that Jesus is never indifferent. You know, we can ask the question, what's the opposite of love? And if I was asked you to the question, that question, what's the opposite of love? The instinctive answer would be, well, hate. You know, hate's the opposite of love. And there's a sense in which that true, that's true. But I think it's equally true to say that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And that's one of the reasons why there is still so much inequality and suffering and pain in the world. It's not because of hate. It's because people just aren't that bothered. And it is absolutely tragic when you see a government or a society or community that is confronted with the suffering of others and it prompts no reaction at all. Thank God, Jesus is never like that. And that brings us to our third question. What effect did Jesus' anger have? Now, I think to answer this question, we need to draw a distinction between anger and grumpiness. And the two of them can feel very similar, um, but I want to distinguish between them. Grumpiness is that sense of irritation, disappointment, or moodiness that will usually manifest itself in moaning, um, where we just complain and mutter and whinge about something. Anger, on the other hand, is anger certainly in the sense that we see it in Jesus, is a profound aversion to something that manifests itself in action. And that's the thing I want you to notice in terms of the distinction. Grumpiness, you moan, but you don't really do anything. But anger, anger prompts action. If something really bothers us, we will do something about it. Sometimes that can be for good. Often it can be uh, for bad. And that's where we have to be incredibly careful because, um, you know, so often the action that anger will provoke in us um, is sometimes a bad idea. And we've got to be careful that we're not hasty. We've always got to examine ourselves to make sure that, that our actions are not going to make a situation even worse. The key point, though, is that anger will lead to action. So if we're asking the question, what effect did Jesus' anger have? The answer is that it prompted him to act. So faced with human suffering, Jesus took action to relieve that suffering. Mark 3, 5 again, he looked around them, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Going back to Matthew 23, when the truth was being distorted, 
Jesus took action to correct that false teaching. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And in the face of a grieving family that had been shattered by death in John 11, Jesus took action. And we read those magnificent words when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He said, take away the stone. And he calls him to come out. But the amazing thing about John 11 is that it's, you know, the most spectacular miracle that Jesus performed. And yet it's just a glimpse of what Jesus has really come to do. Because Jesus hasn't just come to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. He has come to conquer death itself. And when we see Jesus' anger at the grave of Lazarus here in John 11, we're being reminded that Jesus has come to defeat a bitter enemy. He's come to conquer the kingdom of darkness. He's come to destroy the power of sin and death. And that enemy, when we talk about sin, when we talk about the kingdom of evil as the Bible presents it to us, we're not just talking about like a baddie that we want to get rid of. We're not talking about a problem that just needs to be addressed. We're talking about a hideous, vicious enemy. One that provokes Jesus to outrage and that outrage drives Jesus onward from the tomb of Lazarus all the way to the cross. And this is at the heart of why Jesus became one of us, why he became a human. We know how horrible death is. We all know that. When the shadow of death hangs over us or over our loved ones, it's, it's the thing that we fear most of all. We're vulnerable to its attack. We're exposed to the pain and suffering that it causes. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he's come to stand alongside us. He knows what it's like to experience that loss and sorrow that death brings. He knows what it's like to be a human facing the horror of death. But as we face death and all of its power, we are helpless. We're powerless in the face of it. Now, you don't need the Bible to tell you that. You can go to any of the hospitals in London and they'll say, we can only ever solve this issue temporarily. Ultimately, all we can ever do in the face of death is surrender. But this is where Jesus is different. Jesus is the same as us, in that he's horrified by the damage that death causes. But the amazing difference with Jesus is that he is not powerless and he will never surrender. Instead, he has come to conquer that enemy. It's captured so beautifully in Hebrews 2, uh, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, us, shared in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same thing. So he became one of us. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All the things that caused Jesus to anger, pain, lies, suffering, and death, these are the things that come from the kingdom of evil, and that's the kingdom that Jesus has come to destroy. And that means that when we see Jesus angry, we do not see a violent hothead who can't control himself. 
We see a mighty warrior preparing for battle. We see a courageous rescuer who's come to our aid. We see a conqueror ready to fight for you and for me. We see holy, irrepressible anger at all the damage that sin and death are doing to you. And the incredible truth is that all of that means is that when it comes to saving you, when it comes to saving anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, when it comes to saving you, you do not miss with Jesus. So last question, how should we respond to all of this? I'm going to say three things. One, we should admire Jesus. So often, maybe even almost always, when we see anger in people around us, it's a display of weakness. A short-tempered boss, an impatient customer, a selfish streak in somebody you have to work or live alongside. It's never like that with Jesus. His anger is only ever good anger. In fact, this is, these are the best displays of anger that the world has ever seen. They're the only displays of perfect anger. It's an anger that arises from his extraordinary compassion, from his impeccable integrity, from his hatred of sin, and from his deep, deep love for sinners who come to him for salvation. So we admire Jesus. Second thing we should do is strive to emulate Jesus. If Jesus is the perfect human, if Jesus got angry at times, then that is showing us that there are occasions when anger is appropriate. It's an appropriate, um, it's an appropriate emotion mindset for us as followers of Jesus. Now, I want to be careful saying that because there's so many times and ways in which anger is inappropriate and damaging. And please, please don't use this sermon as an excuse to lose your temper this week. I'm absolutely not giving that to you. But I do want us to recognize that Jesus is showing us that there are times when anger is appropriate and good. And that's why we want to pray, Lord, please help me never to get angry about the things that don't matter. But please help me never to be indifferent about the things that do. Please may my anger always be like Jesus' anger. And, you know, it's all part of being Christ-like. We want to love the way he loves. We want to care the way he cares. We want to help the way he helped others. We want to be angry only ever in the way that he was angry. God grant that the sight of injustice suffering, exploitation, and twisted truth. God grant that that bothers us the way it bothered Jesus. So we want to admire Jesus, we want to emulate Jesus, but above all else, we want to hide in Jesus. Ultimately, the whole of reality is in the context of a conflict between good and evil. And that's not hard to see. You, you, you only have to live your own life um, to see that there is this constant battle between what we know is right and what we're attracted to yet know is wrong. You have to look at the world around you. You see that, you see good in the world around us in so many ways. Um, you see, you see awful stuff. Um, 
London, amazing. It's been amazing for a, a, a guy from Lewis to come and look at London. There's so much that's just incredible here, but there's a lot of, a lot of things that are, are not great underneath everything that we see around us. I don't need to tell you that. And it's no different in Carloway. It's no different. We just don't have, our buildings aren't as cool. Um, but it's no different. There's so much that's good, so much that's awful. That's because the whole of reality is in a context between, in the context of a conflict between good and evil, between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. There is no third alternative. And there is no neutral ground between the two. We're in one or the other. That's why Jesus can say, you're either for me or against me. The one who's not against us is for us. That conflict is the context that the whole of human history exists in. We've got to ask ourselves, which side do you want to be on? And surely, surely for every one of us, there is only one answer. We want to hide behind Jesus. He is our warrior. He's our defender. He's our hero. And in the face of sin and death and evil, he will take the fight to the enemy. And all you have to do, all we have to do, is hide behind him in faith. Hide behind him by putting our trust in him. And this is where we see an amazing theological truth that applies to everyone who's a Christian. So this applies to everyone here who's a Christian, and it will apply to you if you become a Christian, which I hope so much you will. But for every Christian, this is a remarkable theological truth that I want to conclude with and I want you to think about. And the amazing theological truth is this, that as a Christian, you make Jesus angry. Now, I need to explain that, I think. Often in life, people are angry with us, we're on the receiving end of that anger, and it's horrible. That is not what I mean. I'm not saying that Jesus is angry with you. I'm not saying that you get on Jesus' nerves. That is never true for all of God's children. It's never true. I'm sure that you can think of many times when people are angry with you, and the last thing any of us needs is for someone else to be angry with us as well. As Christians, I'm not saying that Jesus is angry with you. What I'm saying is that, that in Jesus, you have someone who cares about you so much that he will be angry about you. Angry because of you. That's what I mean when I say that you make Jesus angry. when, In other words, when sin tries to hurt you and destroy you and to wreck your lives and your relationships and your future, when sin tries to do anything like that to you, Jesus is outraged. And the reason he is outraged is because you are his. You are his. That means he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get angry because to him you're irritating. He gets angry because to him you are irreplaceable. And for everyone who is a Christian, 
Jesus' anger is not him saying to you, don't you come, don't you dare come near me because you've messed up so much and I'm so fed up of all your stupid mistakes in life and everything else that's wrong with you. That is not what Jesus' anger is saying at all. Jesus' anger is not him saying to you, don't you dare come near to me. For everyone who is a Christian, Jesus' anger is him placing you behind his back and saying to the kingdom of evil, don't you dare come near her. Don't you dare come near him. That is where the cross places you. That's the safety and security that you have if you are a believer in Jesus or if you become one. And that is why the anger of Jesus is amazing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for everything that you are, for your wisdom, your courage, your mercy, your gentleness, and for your anger. And we thank you that you have come to fight for us, to protect us, and to keep us safe forever. And we pray that as we go into our lives this week, that, that all our security, we'd find all our security in you. And also that as we think of our own anger and conduct, that, that we would be Christ-like, that we'd be like you, Lord Jesus, in terms of how we react to things. We bow before you as the perfect Savior. And we pray that every one of us would know you more closely today and for the rest of our lives. Amen.